This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. Hello and welcome to Plato's Cave, our Triple R film criticism show and podcast. My name is Thomas Cordwell. I'm joined by Cerise Howard, Alexandra Helen Nicholas and Emma Westwood. Now on tonight's show, we're going to look at the latest blockbuster monster movie, Kong, Skull Island. We're also going to take a look at the Australian documentary, David Stratton, A Cinematic Life. Uh, I think Stratton works in the same field as us, as us vaguely. We'll, we'll cover that when we get up to it. Uh, what, the- pornography? Thanks for filthing the show up from the outset, yeah. Emma. <laughs> I think you somewhat improved my lame attempt at humour there, Emma, so thank you. <laughs> improved, it's debatable. Hey, let's get into the first film that we want to talk about tonight, and that is The Salesman. This is the new film by the acclaimed Iranian filmmaker Asghar Fahadi. It premiered last year at the Cannes Film Festival, where it won the Best Screenplay Award and Best Actor Award for lead actor Sahab Mosinini. Most recently, it won the Best Foreign Language Film Award at the Oscars, uh, which Fahadi did not attend out of protest against Trump's travel ban. Now, Hossanini, who frequently appears in Fahadi's films, plays Emad, a high school teacher and actor who is appearing in a production of Arthur Miller's Death of a Salesman, playing the lead role of Willie Loman. Emad's wife, Rana, who is played by the popular Iranian actor... Tarani uh, Ali Dosti, who also has appeared in several of Fahadi's previous films, uh, is also in the production and playing the role of Linda Lohman, meaning that the real-life married couple are playing a married couple on stage. The film begins with Emad and Rana having to evacuate their building and urgently requiring somewhere new to live. They end up in an apartment that the previous tenant still has not moved all her stuff out of. One night, when Rana is at home by herself, a traumatic incident occurs that may have resulted from mistaken identity. Emad becomes obsessed with finding out what happened and why, threatening his relationship with Rana, his ability to perform in the play, and his own moral compass. In other words, this is a Fahadi film, which is <laughs> dramatic, complicated, and a lot of the film we spend us we we spend the time asking ourselves what exactly did happen, whose version is correct, who has the answers to all the questions that the film continually raises. Alex does. I have all the answers. There's been a bit of um just with the with the the brouhaha surrounding this film um and its director's legal status to enter the United States, I think that there was quite some rumblings that he's winning of the Oscar um, was somehow a kind of political act. And I would challenge anybody to watch the first five minutes of this film and and really try to back that up. This is, I mean, this guy knows how to make a movie. And I love that the relationship that he has between the staged performance, this very um, almost modernist, you know, the, the, the death of a salesman being staged. This film opens with these shots of this, of this set, of this theatrical set, and then it pulls back to the story that, that we followed throughout the movie, The Salesman, um, he's a hell of a filmmaker. I mean, I, I going from the, these beautiful shots, these almost neon-saturated shots of the, of the death of the salesman stage set and then going to this quite intense action 
uh, as they're evacuated from their crumbling building. Uh, that's that's how you that's it's how a long you open take a, as well. It's incredible yeah. filmmaking. Mm. That's how you open a bloody movie. Yeah, yep. <laughs> like, this is not a this is not a, a sympathy se- vote. A My God, a separation won in, uh, the Oscar for best foreign film as well, didn't it? That's why I think there was that speculation that this time it was token because of the political stuff, but. Um, yeah, I agree with you. I don't He's think one of the world's leading filmmakers who's yeah. working at the moment. And I must admit, yeah, watching the first 5 to 10 to 15 minutes of this film, I just thought this is... I know this. This is so refreshing to be back in the company of a filmmaker of this caliber. I, I, I know I've had a run where mostly films I've watched recently have been on on the okayish side, and then you watch something like this, and it's not a spectacle driven film. It's it, it is a drama, and I just had that you know wonderful sense of relaxing into it, thinking I'm being looked after here by somebody so skilled, so talented, so good at disguising his skill as well. I mean, and, and, you know, the acting, the direction of this film is just superb throughout. I think it's a tremendously sophisticated film. It's not just that the the action has finds any number of echoes within this stage production that is, dare I say, interwoven through it. This is a word we're going to try to avoid using in the next 50-odd um, minutes, isn't it? <laughs> weaving. Uh, weaving. Uh, but it's... Uh, it's so rich this film and it's not just that there's a a real immersion in Iranian specifically Iranian social mores that like all his previous films this this one really probes but this one takes so much time to to put side by side for consideration say the dramas unfolding in the show and it's very fraught production as well as the dramas unfolding much more dramatically and jeopardising a marriage and perhaps other relations of people at the outset of the film, unknown to the protagonists. Uh, it's extraordinarily sophisticated. Uh, uh, there's a little signpost early on for me. I, I, you guys might have noticed the poster for Ingmar Bergman's Shame in the apartment that they're moving out of. Another film in which two protagonists um, have a, a crumbling relationship. Uh, they're both artists and find themselves somehow in a... a seemingly mm, inextricable, intractable conflict that they've just found themselves in. And um, I I, I noticed that. There's there's reference to a very key Iranian new wave film called The Cow, which um, Hosseini's character as a teacher tries to introduce his bored class to. And that film's very important for how it introduced uh, a movement which by turns uh, introduced a lot of postmodernist structures and techniques to Iranian film where there's always commentary on the film from um, within it and and here this this film is not only looking at uh, all manner of film theoretical um, bread and butter items like the male gaze which is a biggie and I'm sure you guys might want to get in on that in a moment as well but just the whole cinematic apparatus the whole business of staging uh, a play putting on a show telling a story and it just this film I think could could um, merit any number of repeat viewings and more be drawn from it. It is that rich and that dense. Yeah, I certainly didn't feel like I picked up everything. I, I really want to see this again. Yeah, so have you... You've, I've seen it twice and I did... Oh, you have seen it yes, twice? Yes, I yep. have seen it twice and because uh, I think this is an early contender for uh, definitely in the top ten films of this year for me. Um as everyone is saying, it's there's just so much to say about this film and it keeps on revealing more and more with everything, every every time you see it, every time someone speaks about it, you can hear more about it. But it seems to start um, 
in the mundane and even in the mundane everything is so important and that's the thing watching it a second time it it really does you see from the start why how everything is informing what happens later and even that amazing beginning where we have the the foundations of their building crumbling it's just this amazing setup for what happens across the whole of the film their whole relationship but i think this is the type of film that should play at schools here in Australia. It's um, it could play at schools. It's not graphic in any way. It doesn't have anything. Separation that's... gets taught in schools. Does it now? Yeah, Great. yeah, great. That's good to that's good to hear because I think this more than showing the us and them. Look how different they are to us. It actually shows how the same we are like to her asking him little mundane things over the phone like can you please go and get the liquid soap for me and you know these very very little ritualistic things that everyone does and their relationship is a relationship of equals and a relationship of respect but he sets it up it couches it in terms of this um in terms of iranian society that male pride and the female dignity and how that gets shattered in their relationship and that's ultimately what um starts to test them Farad is, I think, an extraordinary visual artist um, and we've already kind of touched on some of those things, but I think precisely what we're getting at here is that he comes from a really... He has a really strong literary imagination mm. um, and it's so steeped in, in, well, in a comes, historical knowledge. He comes from the theatre himself. Yeah, and you yeah. can so feel that. So, you know, I, th- I believe that he came to Death of a Salesman after deciding on the setup of the film. So he didn't go in with the idea that it would be about Arthur Miller's death of a salesman. Um, but I think there's a, a, people talk about a separation a lot when they talk about the salesman, but the film that makes me think, even though it's quite different tonally, is his 2009 film about Ellie, um, which itself riffs very heavily on Jane Austen's Emma, um, not, not as explicitly, obviously, as this film. But what I find interesting is that it's the same couple, the same actor, uh, the same actors playing the main couple. So uh, Tarani Aladusti plays Ellie uh, in About Ellie and um, Hosseini plays Ahmad, not Ahmad. So <laughs> hmm. <laughs> very similar names. But I love the relationship. I want. I really want to watch these two films back to back in a way more than I want to watch A Separation and this back to back. It feels like a real companion piece to About Ellie in a funny way. I think the, the matter of them being uh, these films concerning couples is really significant. So we have... Um, There are two couples within this film. It's the same couple. It's the same husband and wife. But it's so key to um, Iranian uh, film and clearly theatre too that if you're having a husband and wife on stage, especially if they're going to indulge in any intimacy, it is necessary they be married in real life. There are actually these sort of strictures upon Iranian society such that... um, uh, you, you cannot have, say, folks um, canoodling on in, within a, a narrative if the people themselves are not in the real world known to be intimate as well. And um, that, that is alluded to quite a few times in, in this. Um, there's even a, a theatrical production. It is, it's paused momentarily. And Emma um, uh, says, my, my partner and I uh, need to just leave the stage momentarily or something like that. And it just clearly alludes to that, just to make sure people grasp... Uh, that the audience understands that there's uh, it's a moment of breaking a fourth wall within a film. <laughs> I mean, there are so many walls being broken down. I mean, at the start, the walls are crumbling in their apartment block. I think there's just so much here that is uh, rich for probing away with overthinking minds. But none of it feels like trickery, does it? None no, of it no. feels like sort of smart-ass, look-at-me, breaking fourth wall stuff, which, which I, I perfectly enjoy, but I also love it when it's done in a way like, 
it is in this film. I mean, there's even a scene in this film where they discuss the censors coming at in the yes. house with the play. You know, there, there are three scenes un, under threat. Um, I, I listened to a fantastic conversation about Fahadi and this film recently. I'm going to give a shout-out to the Hellies for Hyphenates podcast, which Woo-hoo. Alex, Cerise and I have been on and Emery's going to be on very soon. Apparently, yes. This is a, <laughs> <laughs> well, no, it's a... Because I'm just going to plagiarise from them, so I thought I'd better just just acknowledge them. It's a podcast by Australian critic Lee Zachariah and English critic Sophie Mayer. (laughs) And on their latest show, they've got the Canadian critic... Oh, oh, damn it, I've lost her name. Um, Tina uh, Hassania. Who, oh, who wrote the wonderful book. Who wrote the book on Fahadi. From Critical Press. Yes, good book. And she has a fascinating perspective on his cinema. And, and she's, her feeling is, and she says, you know, I can't, I can't prove this because I haven't spoken to him about it, but he makes films about Iranian society that you can interpret depending on your perspective. Mm-hmm. And this is why he's free to make what he wants. He doesn't overtly critique Iranian society, but if you're coming to it from our perspective, you can kind of see how there might be sly criticisms in there. But if you're coming from it at the point of a conservative Iranian censor it is also playing the game that you expect it to as well. That's just He's an, a another, very clever man. Another this... layer of uh, sophistication. Mm-hmm. I think the other interesting thing about this film in terms of... Um, like a separation is that title applied to the obvious thing but you could also use for so many other situations and sets of characters I mean and this film is full of people trying to sell you the truth sell you a story it's, it's not the, t- the title isn't just there because the lead character is playing the salesman in a play there are many people trying to present us with a version of what is the truth or the truth that he wants to hear. I think somebody pointed out to me recently and this isn't a spoiler but uh, there's a, a very important character in this film who's a baker and it's like, who is the salesman? And, of course, you just think, oh, the salesman is, is the death of the salesman. Um, but then you actually think about who in the film is selling things. Oh, and it is that little... Is yeah, no, it's like, yeah, yeah, <laughs> like, it's like that yeah. when you're, um, like, undergrad cinema studies and it's that rabbit out of a hat moment. Yep. I, I live for that stuff. Look, the other thing that we haven't really touched on because I think that this is just a Pandora's box and there goes the rest of our show... Um, is the issue of gendered violence. And I'm very careful to not call it sexual violence because we don't... That's never made explicit. It's heavily implied, but I think the film is very, very shrewd to not make that explicit. A lot of people have talked about this in relationship to Elle in the sense that they're both almost deconstructive rape-revenge films. Mm. Um, I have a lot to say on that. Yeah. (laughs) Thank you, good night. (laughs) But really, because one of the key dramas of Willie Loman and Death of a Salesman is this infidelity that he had and that comes to him in flashbacks during the play. And then we we get we very quickly see that um, uh, a sort of a parallel character to that in uh, Imad's life, uh, the previous tenant of Imad and Rana's uh, newfound apartment is clearly somebody of um, who is engaged in a certain amount of moral turpitude. It is <laughs> Loose morals, <laughs> yeah. I think my grandmother we've, would say. Yeah. We've had that and uh, canoodling in the <laughs> same segment. This my is... goodness, you, you danced around that even more than the characters in the film well, did. Well, they do, though. They find all manner of ways of saying such things very discreetly mm. because to really tar anyone with that brush is clearly just... Uh, it's dangerous and mm. sometimes you might wonder is that the film being very careful about what it says because that's a necessity to skirt around that issue or is it the characters or you know, just how many layers there are to that but it is very interestingly problematised by just the, the, the way Ahmad and Rana's relationship is beginning to dis, um, come under such stress because of what may have gone on between an intruder and his 
wife and and whether there was a suggestion of infidelity which is extremely problematic because she wouldn't have sought it very obviously it would have been an assault maybe that happened maybe it didn't it's so beautifully uh opaque we can see his mind spinning in a billion different directions throughout this film where he's trying to think what actually happened and he doesn't want to suspect her he doesn't want to be angry with her but he finds these feelings welling up inside him and And he's still a sympathetic character i mean this is the other extraordinary thing about fahadi's films his characters are all sympathetic he doesn't give us villains and it makes it so much more complex because of that i've written two books on rape revenge films so i could obviously go quite berserk at this moment so i'm not going to i'm going to very very carefully rein in my <laughs> thoughts here but what i find really fascinating about this a lot i've read some criticism uh, sorry, some uh reviews and, and discussions of this film that have said oh no he's doing something really radical where he's separating the the husband's desire for vengeance from the from what the woman actually wants that the desire for vengeance is more uh, an issue of his a property crime mm. that, that, that it's about him working stuff out and isn't this new and isn't this radical and it's like well actually no this isn't new and radical rape revenge films have actually been doing that for a say, really yeah, long time that reminds me of disgrace the australian well, film set in south africa what i find really yeah. fascinating is the place where i think that that has been articulated the most explicitly is in uh 80s and 90s tv movies which are heavily gendered towards women and are dismissed as this kind of conservative, regressive domain of, of screen culture. But that's that's actually the first time that I really saw this, that, you know, these 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 violated women whose husbands are going on these rampages. And the, the that's what actually this film reminded me of, is films like No One Can Protect Her with Joanna Kearns, who was the mum from Growing Pains. <laughs> I'm going to vouch that I'm the first film critic who's actually drawn that parallel between the <laughs> Oscar-winning Ferrari film The Salesman. And the Joanna Kerr TV movie, no one can protect her. Thank you, good night. <laughs> Try the veal. But the, 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 and, and that's where the comparisons to Elle have come in. You know, it's a woman not responding in the way that yeah. you would expect her to behave because this expectation has been constructed by the male expectation about what how one should respond to so something I, yeah, like this. I think this. that these yeah. are films that deal with the issues of sexual violence. And, and even, as I said, in, in uh, The Salesman, that's coded in a very, very careful way that I think you cannot underestimate. Um, and Elle, of course... I think these films, I think to call those films, both of these films rape revenge films, is is naive at best. I don't think of a salesman like that at no, all. No, not at all. I think what, it's dealing with the similar issues and questions, but yeah. I don't think it falls under that. It's not the same trope. I mean, it's it's doing something very different. It's almost, it's almost uh, what's the expression that they used to use in Hitchcock films for an object? A MacGuffin. It's almost a MacGuffin, what actually happened that night. Like, the actual details of what happened is not what is not important itself it's the the search for responding to that is what compels the story the last the last 15 20 minutes of this film is i i don't know i'm with you emma i'm not sure whether i'm going to see anything that quite parallels it this year amazing and it's it's great as well uh because the film is beautifully kind of in two halves which is actually separated by probably what is the most menacing shot i have seen this year which was that door very very slowly oh. opening yeah yes we, it was we, very powerful i felt the same thing yep. like that shot in nocturnal animals that you and i bonded over last yes. year oh. where the car drives off and it goes silent i had the same response in this film to the shot of that door slowly opening yeah mm. wow Hey, we've got to talk about other films at some point <laughs> on the show. It's, um, it's sad to be leaving The Salesman because I feel like we could talk about it a lot, lot more. The Salesman is the film we've been talking about. You're listening to Plato's Cave with Cerise, Emma, Alex and Thomas. This is 3RRR. You are listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3RRR FM in Melbourne, Australia. 
Kong Skull Island is the latest remake or reboot of the King Kong giant gorilla film series, which began with the original King Kong in 1933. This new film is also the second film in what is being called the MonsterVerse franchise of films, which began in 2014 with Gareth Edwards' Godzilla. You all didn't know that, did you? <laughs> yeah. Um, Skull <laughs> Island. Kong Skull Island is set before the events of Godzilla, and apart from a post credit scene, has no connection to it whatsoever. Uh, most of the action takes place in 1973, just after the announcement of the end of the Vietnam War. John Goodman plays a government agent who is leading an, exposi- <laughs> an expedition <laughs> to the so-called Skull Island under the pretense of it being a mapping expedition, when it is in fact uh, a, a trip to look for monsters. Some of the others who join him on the trip include an acclaimed photographer played by Brie Larson, an elite tracker played by Tom Hiddleston, and a military squadron led by an obsessive soldier played by Samuel L. Jackson. Now, without giving too much away, when the humans get to Skull Island, they do indeed encounter several giant monsters. That include a very large gorilla named Kong. Now, Emma, you quite literally wrote the book... (laughs) On monster movies. movies. (laughs) So let's kick off with your thoughts on Kong Skull Island. Kong Skull Island. Well, um, this is not... I think it's important to say it isn't a a remake of uh, the 1933 film in the way that Peter Jackson's film was and a rather elongated uh, remake it was too. Uh, But uh, I have a... I think Kong is just a a marvellous story. Let's set it up with with that. I think it's so enduring. It's like Frankenstein and Dracula, yet Kong is um, purely cinematic. He wasn't... This was written by Marion C. Cooper, who was the original director, and he wrote it for the screen. So he didn't adapt it from a book like Frankenstein or Dracula. So there's a, a lot of, I think there's uh, a lot of people come to Kong with their own Kong baggage. I think everyone knows Kong, even kids, <laughs> their Kong size baggage. Um, and this one is uh, using the Kong setup. So the idea of him being um, this mystical creature that's, they believe there's something on this island that cannot be accessed. It's a remote island, blah, blah, blah. Let's go there. Let's try and exploit it for commercial gain and let's see what happens. So uh, that's a setup. Uh, but unlike the other films, it doesn't have Kong's beauty and the beast storyline going through it. So we don't have Kong being um, Kong's Achilles heel being the beautiful blonde who um, eventually results in his demise. And I think it's... Spoiler. Ah, well, Come on. It's it's almost been 100 years. I don't want people to be disappointed. (laughs) (laughs) Although Brie Larson's character is... She uh, still has somehow uh, her feminine charm is does still charm Kong in a, a certain way in this film but uh, the the Vietnam War setting is very new and very heavy-handed uh, in the the type of uh, I think what we're used to in terms of Vietnam War films it's all established in a ongoing um, playlist of songs from the era even including uh, White Rabbit when they go into the opium den and things like that and the camaraderie of Vietnam is very much um very much there. Um, I believe Cerise and I actually saw this film together and commented that there was um, uh, Tom Hiddleston's character is actually called 
Conrad, and that seems to be uh, referencing Heart, Heart of Darkness. Um, and Apocalypse Now, it's very much about that sort of, uh, that, that adventure. It's very ham-fisted film. It's very heavy-handed. It's a big CGI monkey. Um, I, I enjoyed it. I will say I actually enjoyed it. I don't think it's a masterpiece, but I thought it was a bit of a hootenanny of a good time. And I think that um, it's obviously the start of another franchise, which is probably going to be terrible, but uh, I believe uh, this was a bit of fun. This was a bit of fun. I had a lot of fun with this too. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And it definitely is going to be the start of something and something a bit peculiar if it really is bringing all the Godzilla monsters uh, into the the Kong verse. Which well, verse are we up to? We're in the monster verse. verse. I, I believe the next film will be another Godzilla film, and then yeah. the fourth yeah. film, Kong and Godzilla are going to get it on. As in fighting, yeah. <laughs> they're going to fight. <laughs> uh, mm. Already, there are there are um, little certain um, would, would kickstart. I would totally yeah. kickstart that. Actually, that, that's the film I would like to see. Yeah. Kong, yeah. Kong has met Godzilla before. Yes, um, I know. In 1962, so mm. they have an old relationship. <laughs> How did that work out? Uh, <laughs> Not <without> so spoiling. <laughs> sorry, sorry. Sexually. Cut you very, off, very cut sexually. you off badly there. What were you saying? <laughs> oh, look, you know, I don't know that I had anything terribly <laughs> profound to bring to this anyway. It's not a film that, <laughs> that, that really demands a, a profound level of engagement. I mean, you can try to sift through the... Um, the, the the lunacy of this film, but it's just camp, larger than life, uh, fun. It's just nonsense. Uh, I mean... Brie Larson I do feel a little for because he's really just asked to be pert of buttock and breast and pose uh, glamorously in the jungle whilst carnage rains down all around her in a CGI sort of fashion. But even that's actually quite well done. I never thought the CGI is bad, actually, which I'm quite accustomed to thinking. I I normally find it extremely difficult to believe in CGI. Mind you, um, I haven't seen a tremendous number of monster or superhero movies lately where CGI is almost the dominant uh, mode of production in the film. I don't know why we don't just call these films animation a lot of the time. They're at least equal parts animated movies as they are live action. And even then that term animation is um, problematic because nothing's actually being animated, if you know what I mean. Like nothing inanimate is brought to an animated still, state of being. Oh, you're you're taking this to I weird still, places now. I, still think I can't though, help it. Yeah, bring, <laughs> it back, bring it back to the porn. That was way easier yeah. to deal I with. I don't know about you, Cerise, but I kind of find that um, in terms of the CGI, I don't think CGI has made any huge leaps since Jurassic Park. I mean, Jurassic Park actually combined the two together, especially in this big monster. It's still the benchmark in many ways, isn't yeah, it? Yeah. Well, Jurassic Park combined the actual animatronics with CGI as users touching up. I don't think we've got to a point yet where anything created from scratch in CGI really works. Yep, yep, I think CGI exactly. is still at its best when it's used to enhance actual physical elements on screen. But I, that, that we may just be old, you know, in in, in, in not having that aesthetic already well, in talking our blood. About, talking about old, my hmm. uncle, I actually spoke to him about this on the weekend and he, he describes CGI exactly as you were talking about, as an enhancer, not as a creator. That's probably where it best works. So Jurassic Park used, I believe, all the puppetry and animatronics up close because that visceral up close movement, something that's actually there rings truer. Uh, and then for the big full body movement, 
then you have um, the CGI. So Kong, there were lots of close-up, uh, you know, CGI scenes that, yeah, you go, oh, yeah, right. But the, the, the direction within that, like the actual camera movements when Kong's sort of flinging people around in helicopters was quite spectacular and notably the sound was fantastic. They really pulled in and pulled out sound in, in very interesting ways. I actually think Peter Jackson did a better job with his version of King Kong in terms of the way he animated Kong himself. I mean, that scene at the end of Jackson's film where Kong dies and falls off the building. Spoilers! <laughs> <laughs> and you see the life leave his eyes. Yeah. I thought was really quite impressive. Mm. And I, I think I preferred... No, I know I preferred Peter Jackson's film over this. I think Peter Jackson's film is unfairly maligned now. I really enjoyed this for about half an hour. I, I really love this setup and all these really wonderful characters. It had a bit of an aliens feel to it. You know, the scientists and the military mixed together to go and go on this mission. That first encounter with Kong is absolutely fantastic. <laughs> the sound and the visuals, there's lots of POV stuff inside the helicopters giving us the sense of disorientation. It is really, really uh, exciting. But as the film kind of went on, I, it just petered out for me. Um, the, the idea of Kong being this vengeance against the hubris of humanity was really great when it was introduced, and then it didn't really go any deeper than that. Um, I thought Brie Larson and Tom Hiddleston were both completely wasted characters. When they brought in a character to add some comic relief, it felt out of tune for me. <laughs> it, it was as yeah. much as I love that actor. I mean, yeah. I, I, Jonathan C. Riley. I, I, I don't think it's a huge spoiler. Um, and um, you know, it looked fine. And by the end of this film, I thought that was fine. But I felt a bit sad. It never quite lived up to the expectation that it set up in the first half hour or so. I'm probably even further down on the opinion scale, I think, than than you are, <laughs> Thomas. I um, I will start on things that I did like. I think this film, in terms of its color palette, does something really great. In, with the colour red. I just really like how this film uses red. There's a beautiful kind of khaki yellow-red palette that's used through this film um, that's quite, you know, obviously really consciously executed and it's a, it, I really enjoyed just looking at the colour red. and That, made me, that makes me sound like a five-year-old, I realise that. <laughs> but look, it's, it's a slim pickings for me. I, I very much admired the tightness of Kong's buttocks muscles. I thought that his butt <laughs> was remarkable. You're talking about the colour red and Kong's yeah, look, buttocks. I'm trying you realise that really there's a hard. thing in the ape world with the colour red and buttocks. Maybe you I'm, do realise I'm that. devolving <laughs> and like, in front of you. And I thought John C. Riley was wonderful. He kind of carried me through this film. I may have walked out if it wasn't for John C. Riley. He's soft, but he, you know, it's not that it's not the greatest role he's ever played. But it's his, a nice character. His I face just, for me is like coming home. The one line has grated on me a little bit. Look, I I turned very early in this film where uh, I think John uh, Goodman, walk, who I love, my, you know, my, my darling John Goodman, walks into the White House and says something like, oh, it's 1973. Politics is never going to get stranger than this. And it's like, oh. oh. <laughs> the, the dialogue was, um, was quite... I mean, there's, a, there's a speech yeah. at the start about Icarus and that was when I switched off. And this feels like one of... I, I suspect that there's probably a very early script of this film that is amazing and it's just had so many sweaty executive pores come in and just... Com- you guys pointed it out. Like, this film is so heavy-handed with its Vietnam references and then it does nothing with them. I had terminal bad vibes with this so I went to my doctor uh, Josh Nelson, Dr Josh Nelson who did his PhD <laughs> on uh, Vietnam war films and trauma like this is his 
this is his bag. I'm and guessing he's neutral and had very little to say about it. As, as usual, Josh is a bit of a wallflower, no strong <laughs> opinions. Josh, I think the technical phrase would be went berserk. Dare I say, I'm going to say it, he went ape shit. <laughs> he went ape shit. Um, so Josh wasn't a fan. Josh Josh went the full the full Marxist theory on this. He went the full um, <laughs> the full the full yeah the full thing. I mean, I've, I've printed out the email because she just wrote such wonderful stuff, but. Why bring up and force feed all this intense, specific political context and not do anything with it? I mean, this film is so heavy-handed with it. You know, it's not... There's nothing about the story that couldn't have been set in the Korean War or a made-up war, yet it is so heavy-fisted. It's so, so intense about Vietnam... And it, it's hollow. It does yeah. nothing. And it's Well, it's culturally it is, safe now. It's aesthetics. And yeah, this is Josh's also. thing. The erasure of history for the sake of aesthetics is pretty much right on the money here. I mean, this is pure, like, Frederick Jamison stuff. And it's kind of gross. It's like, you know, watching the film, it's like, ha, ha, ha. You know, like, it's just a bunch of dude bros saying, hey, dog tags, man. And hey, Black Sabbath, man. And, and it's like, you know what? Two million dead civilians, and, you know, on the Vietnamese side alone. You know, that's maybe we can yeah. do something with that. It I also, suspect that there was probably an earlier script that maybe did because it is so in, in the script that it's about Vietnam. But the thing that we see on the screen, there's it's hollow. It also does the thing I think all King Kong films have struggled with, which is the kind of the noble, mysterious savages who just appear and have no agency. They're just there as part of the fauna. I'm hesitant to get into the kind of really simplistic identity politics stuff, but I could actually have done without the... Um, the mysterious silent natives, yeah. the mystical East stuff as well. It's like, oh, come on. It's 2017. <laughs> a, uh, Haven't we moved on? What about, I'll be interested to see if you guys noticed this because it was something that I noticed and I don't know whether I, I, I should even mention it, to be totally honest. I feel a bit dodgy mentioning it. But it's this, there's one point where they set up this idea of Samuel L. Jackson against Kong and that well, idea saw of it very ever. deliberate parallel was, yeah, with the eyes. as a shot where their eyes Match. It was almost yeah. Samuel L. Jackson as Kong. And for a film that was really presenting itself with quite heavy political correctness, that kind of made me sit back and go, oh, that was a little uncomfortable. There's a, yeah, there's one moment where they, they kind of match eyes, but they actually yeah. match the shots as well. Exactly. And it's like somebody hasn't thought this out. And it's, it's <laughs> yeah. not that I think it's deliberately... Yeah obnoxious. I think it's just there was probably a really great script and, and just a bunch of dumb people. When there's that much in money involved, I think there just were a bunch of dumb guys There were three writers, but it is hard to tell from writers' credits how yeah. how much input everyone has. But I agree with you. There was also a point in the film where um, they could have had a bit of a, a futility search, like gone for looking for someone we already knew that they were dead, um, and they could have really pumped that for a whole lot of stuff. And I thought, oh, this is going to be exciting because they're going to go through all this stuff for nothing and they abs- actually stepped on it and um, there, stopped that storyline. I, I mean, there is something shame. really amazing. I think even if you don't know the original King Kong, the image of Kong breaking free from those chains is something that just gets me. It's it's almost like it just locks into my brain stem the pleasure that that image gives me. It's such a primal, like it's a really primal emotional thing. So it's for me, I'm glad I watched the movie just for that one image. But I thought a lot while I was watching this of a film that closed the British Film Festival last year called A Monster Calls. I don't know if you guys saw Oh, yeah, I saw that. Yeah. Splendid film. Um, I'm which also really looking forward to that coming oh, out so we oh, can talk it about it. It did announce being, it's, it's disappeared from the release calendars and I'm told it will still get released some point this that's, year. I mean, there's no other film like yeah, that. Yeah, I mean, and, and, and that film plays with King Kong iconography as yep. well. And all I kept thinking was like, oh, gosh, you've got, uh, got Kong on one hand and then we have a monster calls on the other and they're dealing with this same 
creature, but they're just decade just in terms of their kind of emotional intelligence and what they do with the iconography these are just worlds apart but Eber and Cerise liked it and we should acknowledge that <laughs> oh, <laughs> any last we, we better move on any, any final words <laughs> <laughs> we enjoyed each other's company didn't we <laughs> but that wasn't the intent I was just I was just trying to present there are a, a range of opinions being expressed <laughs> and here. some of them are more right than others yes. <laughs> you're listening to <clears throat> Plato's Cave here on 3 Triple R Triple R, not for everyone, for anyone. David Stratton, Cinematic Life, is a feature documentary about the iconic English-born Australian film critic David Stratton, who, among other things, is known for his battles against Australian film censorship, serving as director of the Sydney Film Festival for 17 years and hosting The Movie Show on SBS and then At The Movies on ABC, both with Margaret Pomerantz. This documentary is autobiographical in part, but it also acts as a mini-history of Australian cinema, with Stratton and other interviewees discussing at length several key Australian films and some of Stratton's personal favourites, as well as films such as Romper Stomper and The Castle, where Stratton's critical response at the time was somewhat controversial. Mm. Or controversial, (laughs) (laughs) Can we just say shout out to David Stratton for calling his autobiography I peed on Fellini? <laughs> like Yay. big up like this film five stars for that alone. I peed on Fellini. <laughs> I've actually, I've actually read that as well. I've did, read that too. did he actually pee on Fellini? Mm. Yep. Yeah, he was Spoilers. at a urinal next. <laughs> <laughs> he was at a urinal next to him apparently and turned to talk to him and that's what happened. Oh, I wish I peed nervous. on Fellini. <laughs> Not, not, not and a, Fellini wishes you peed on him. Yeah. <laughs> well, you guys were the ones that brought up the pornographic. This has taken a turn. We've just begun. I metaphorically wish that yeah. I pe- I'm just going to... Somebody take over. I, I found... The, uh, all right. David Stratton is a professional watcher, like us. Uh, but <laughs> he likes to watch. But... Um, and I found that in this in this documentary, uh, maybe the, the pitch you already said, Thomas, that it is uh, you know this survey of Australian film part autobiography part survey. But I felt it was really much more a survey of Australian film curated by David Stratton rather than about David Stratton's life. Although we do hear little bits and pieces, we're not really. It kind of feels like more of an overarching story. And uh, David Stratton still is an enigma for me he has um he's you never kind of feel like you've really got in there and found out things um there's no doubt he would have so many stories across a career of um professional watching of 25,000 plus Uh, films imagine who else he peed on yes (laughs) just imagine well well, well, I wanted to know and I I didn't find that out from this but um, you know there were moments where they tried to bring um, uh, David Stratton's story into uh, the film stories he was talking about and they weren't it kind of it kind of worked, but it felt a little. It felt a little token. I thought it was just sort of. It was a little bit of a desperate attempt to to bring these two pieces together. Whereas I, 
I actually enjoyed it as a survey of Australian films through David Stratton's eyes. I thought it was, I, I, there were a lot of things I forgot about that it got me excited about and it made me realise I do need to buy my own copy of uh, Picnic at Hanging Rock and how much I do love uh, Wake in Fright and, and so forth. But in terms of being a revelation of David Stratton, he's still he's still a mystery. In fact, I think that man... He, I couldn't... All the photographs where we went back and looked at him over the... Apart from the iconic David Stratton look that he's had since the 80s, I could not recognise him from one photograph to the other. I actually um, assume I was looking at David Stratton in some of those photos, but he's a chameleon. He has looked... He looks so different across the years. My favourite parts of this... um of this documentary were just the scenes of David and Margaret having lunch and yes. just Margaret unrelentingly giving him shit. <laughs> <laughs> and I thought, I mean, I just, I, she, I love her. She is my tribal elder. But like, see, I as, feel as a I woman know film more critic, about I, her. Yeah, I but I just, under, I just mode. love that. Yeah. I thought that they were the they were the bits that I found out the most about David Stratton because they were just kicking back and chatting and that was almost more revealing than, than the, the more overt, do you know quote, what they should documentary. do? Bring back the movie show. They should do... Yeah, they should bring back the movie <laughs> show. That's uh, that's obvious. But they should also do a Margaret, Margaret and David version of Rob Brydon and Steve Coogan's A Trip. <laughs> oh, yeah, The yes. Trip series. <laughs> yep. I think that would be that would fantastic. Be, I would totally kickstart that. Absolutely. I, look, I grew... I mean, the, the, the movie show was so formative to me growing up. I mean, I remember I used to hit... I grew up in Canberra and I would hitchhike. I mean, we had Electric Shadows in Canberra, which was a great sort of art house cinema. But if stuff wasn't playing, I would wag high school and go... I'm gonna probably going to get in retrospective detention no, for this. You're okay, Alex. But we would hitchhike to Sydney to go to the Mandolin, which closed down years ago. I'm showing how old I am. But to see stuff because we saw... You know, oh, Peter Greenaway's got a new film. Let's go to Sydney. You know, let's hitchhike to Sydney. Um, Said nobody in the last 20 years. <laughs> like... <laughs> okay, I'm showing my age. But, like, that, these people led me to commit unwise <laughs> offences as an adolescent and for that I'm very fond of them. So, I mean, David and Margaret had a very direct impact on my oh, burgeoning God, film yeah. taste. Yeah. I, I wish there was more in his work against censorship. Yeah. And there was a, there's a fantastic short film that came out a couple of years ago called Smut Hounds, all about that. And, you know, we're... we're Part of my job at MIF was programming that film to screen, which was a no-brainer. Um, so I won't take any credit for that whatsoever. And uh, it might, might be online now, I'm not too sure. But that 10-minute that film covered far more fascinating uh, subject matter for me in terms of the person Stratton is and was and his significance to the film industry. I mean, people don't realise how pioneering and essential his work was to obliterating some really draconian censorship yeah. laws in this country. There I mean, only a tiny, weeny little bit on it get, that. It gets lost yeah. over, yeah. So it is more sort of a sort of best hits of Australian cinema. Yeah, yeah. it's a funny doco. It's not quite one thing, not quite other. But there's a few moments in I did love. There's a moment where Stratton talks about the most important moment to happen in his life in the context of awards he's, he has won and he spoke about something that wasn't about getting an award and I actually got a little bit choked up at that moment. It was very moving. And I love the bit with Sam uh, Neill talking about Evil Angels where Sam Neill actually got really angry about the fact that the, you know, the dingo stole my baby meme, line yeah, has yeah. become a punchline. And mm -hmm. I, he, he got really fired up in a way that I was really impressed by, you know, where he says, 
Her baby was taken by a dingo and killed. How yeah. has this become a joke? And I actually thought, good on you, Sam Neill. Even the, I love you even more. Even showing, paying that much attention to evil angels surprised me. And that was sort of one film that I'd kind of forgotten about, you know. It, it was there and it's gone. Yeah, me too. Most yeah. of the film selections were fairly like, oh, yeah, of course. That mm-hmm. was the one that really stood out as a bit of a wild card. Mm. Yeah, I, I, I actually really enjoyed this. I'd gone in with a, a few apprehensions and, and um, I, I got totally suckered into the the overview of Australian cinema. Yeah, I agree with all of you. I didn't get to know that much more about Stratton. Uh, but just to think that he was ever part of a counterculture almost, you could say, is kind of mind-boggling given how much of an old fuddy-duddy we consider him yeah. to be these days with his anti-shaky cam tirades and his just general sort of stuffiness and old timiness. And so um, to see that, that 60s, 70s footage of him and knowing that he was actually out there fighting for a screen culture that in turn would help... Um, not, not just allow films and masterpieces, but uh, lesser films from overseas get uh, an airing here without being shredded by the censors. But that would in turn uh, help foster the new wave of Australian filmmakers uh, whose works we then get a reasonable overview of in the course of this film. So I, um, I, I do wish I'd got to know him more, but I actually nonetheless really enjoyed this and, and look forward to the fully fleshed out version that I believe is going to air on the ABC before terribly long, a, a, an expanded version of this. I don't think it's an expanded version as such, but I think there, there is a David Stratton TV series coming out, which is him taking you through Australian cinema. And I, I, I think that some of the footage shot for that has been used in this film or maybe the other way around. I don't yeah. want to go on the record with well, that. Well, I saw a lot of interviewees <laughs> listed in the closing credits who were not in this film. Mm. There were tons. Oh, okay. um, I also noticed the odd typo during the film. I saw Mulan Rogue listed on, on screen. <laughs> 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 Greg McLean's yeah. Mulan Rogue. Yeah, exactly. Mulan Rogue one. Our Nicole. I do, Mulan I Rogue Wars. I, yeah. I know that we're running out of time, but I do think that there's a really important kind of meta conversation to be had about the uh, issue of canon formation and, and figures like David Stratton. I think that there's a certain... Uh, generational framing of this. I think it's a real boomer film. Um, I think boomers would love it. If you know a boomer, take them along to see it. Not that I'm saying that I didn't well, like I, it, I but, guess that's um, that's reflected in those uh, courses he takes now yeah. when they were showing the the people who've been going to that, and it was definitely a boomer centric. Absolutely, crowd, yeah. but I do think that you know issues about what films were included in this particular version of Australian history, what films are excluded. I think there's a whole conversation, and that's another one hour show. Exactly. No, that is interesting. We have talked tonight about The Salesman that is on limited release through Hyde Loss Entertainment. Kong Skull Island is on wide release through Roadshow Films. And David Stratton, A Cinematic Life, is on limited release through Transmission Films. You've been listening to Thomas Cordwell, Cerise Howard, Alexandra Heller, Nicholas and Emma Westwood and Plato's Cave. We'll be back next week. We're going to be taking a look at The Eagle, Huntress and Loving. It's good night from us. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.